0: The 4 O'Clock Football Frenzy is presented by Dustin DeHart of Nova Home Loans. Call him now at 702-577-2600. Adam Candy, it's
1: Cofield Battleborn Broadcast Center on this Wednesday. We've got two hours on the way. Caleb Herring's coming up in just a little bit. Well, speaking of Caleb, give me Crunch Crunch. (laughs) The schedule is out, Candy. We've needed this, right? Like, let's get back on the horse with the UNLV football. They're trying to build something here. Let's start to see the players. Let's get some news. Let's get some enthusiasm. Let's get a feel for what's going to happen at the quarterback position. Practice opens on Tuesday the 30th. That's uh, in just six days. Uh, it'll go all the way through the month of April. A lot of breaks, a lot of breaks. And then it finishes up on Saturday, May 1st. Uh, we'll get into this with Caleb Herring in just a little bit. For you, from a positional battle standpoint, is quarterback the position you'll be looking for news on?
2: It has to be, doesn't it? Because we lived through a season last year where the quarterback situation was muddled throughout the entire season. So, yeah, that has to be where things start and end for the Rebels this spring.
1: Uh, I am interested in, I know it's not the sexiest position, but what the offensive line is going to look like. Because it's going to be young, there's going to be dudes plugged in from the JUCO ranks. There might be some surprising true freshmen who get minutes, but it is vital to this squad that the offensive line performs better than it did a year ago when it had a bunch of veterans, but between health issues and uh, just down years, the O-line did not play well, and you had you know quarterbacks often on the run. Uh, Max Gillum took advantage of it because he became, you know, Uh, righty Steve Young with some of his runs it was crazy but beyond that the offense didn't flow because the offensive line was not up to snuff against uh, more than a few good offenses check that more than a few good defenses around the Mountain West Conference
2: yeah I mean look uh, Max Gillum was run for his life and then trying to stay below deck when he was going to get hit so he did the best that he could but when it comes to the rest of the roster there aren't many positions that you would look at and say well there isn't room for improvement here right like Yes, of course, we saw Kyle Williams perform very well at wide out and give them a lot of hope for the future in that spot. The defensive line had its moments uh, as well for UNLV, but really, I mean, all 22 when it comes to who's on the field, there is room to move up.
1: We've got an update on the football team. First of all, I swear I read the report yesterday that the new president of the organization said that the football team could become the permanent name, which would be the biggest joke of the day, but Uh, The bigger one is that uh, with all this beefing between the owners, Dan Snyder against the rest of the owners, they found a fix. They're going to streamline this whole thing. So Dan Snyder, I guess, is going to be out. Oh, wait. That's not the case, is it?
2: Out of challenges? (laughs) Out of people having a voice against him? Because what (laughs) it appears is that... Is going to win this? uh, It appears that Dan Snyder is not only going to win against his own franchise but maybe even win a bigger battle against the nfl here because he had minority stakeholders of about what was it about 40 percent i believe of the team who were looking to sell their stakes for about a 900 million dollar payout and dan snyder got in the way like dan snyder essentially blocked it from happening and now has basically forced those people to sell to him and so he's going to buy out all the minority stakeholders of that team and Can you imagine? Can you imagine a worse situation for the NFL? And by the way, it looks like they're gonna let it happen. It looks like the NFL, three quarters of the owners are going to approve this happening at the league meetings, which is just stunning to me. But can you imagine a worse situation than Dan Snyder having more control over the WFT than he has had before? Everything the man touches turns to black. It's unbelievable that the league would say, hey, you know what? What we probably should do is make sure that Dan Snyder doesn't have anyone checking him in terms of the ownership. So, I mean, owners, I'm begging you, can at least ninety of you stand up and say, eh, not a great idea.
0: Dustin DeHart of Nova Home Loans brings you the four o'clock football frenzy. Dial 702-577-2600 now. Home prices have never been higher and interest rates have never been lower. Get your mortgage tune up today by calling 577-2600. <laughs> You're listening to Cofield and Company, live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. Let's talk some football. Let's talk a little college and also the Raiders as
1: uh, Caleb Herring joins us every Wednesdays with Candy and Cofield here at the uh, Battleborn Injury Lawyers. What's up, Caleb? What's up, guys? How you doing? Good, man. We're good. Uh, I'm going to get to my uh, angry angle. My my frustrated my irked Angle in just a little bit, but I'm I'm kind of fired up, man. We're seeing the schedule out for UNLV football and spring practice, and you know as we're trying to get back to normal action here with all the the COVID stuff, hopefully dissipating. Uh, how you feeling about uh, seeing the schedule as practice rolls out there for the Rebels on March 30th?
3: I mean I'm, I'm excited. It's really been what two full calendar years since we got spring practice. I mean I know we eventually got football last fall, but We didn't have spring ball last year. So, you know, that's a a big piece of the excitement of of college football is that spring practice and the spectacle that that becomes, Um, especially when you're introducing a new coach, which, you know, the Rebels obviously were doing last year with Marcus Arroyo. Um, Spring ball is when you learn the most about what kind of team you're going to have. I mean, the competition really intensifies in the fall, but you're really gearing up for the season at that point. Spring ball is where you learn, you know, kind of what systems are trying to be installed and um, really, what you got as far as that that good recruiting class that he's been able to, to, to put together for a couple seasons now in a row. But uh, I, I miss the feeling of spring practice. It's it's a little weird, a little different that it's later in the year, but for obvious reasons we we understand that. So it may turn into summer ball towards the end of things out there for the, for the players. But um, no, I'm excited about. It. I'm excited to finally kind of feel the normalcy of this time of year. Be talking about spring football. Um, that that's a, a big step forward as far as getting things back to normal. And I think a big step for UNLV football in particular, to, to learn what we got with, with some of the good recruiting classes, with the, the coaching staff, and um, really after the, the disastrous kind of way that the season unfolded last year, I think a fair shot for the Rebels to really learn and be a complete team by the time the season starts in the fall, I think is the most exciting aspect of, of the spring schedule coming out and, and getting a chance to, I guess, see what the pieces will look like all together before game time.
1: Yeah, I wonder what the parameters are, if they can do everything they would do in a normal spring practice in terms of contact. And that leads me to the the next question. How much can you learn in spring? Like, could you come out of the spring with the, uh, you know, the the potential three-man race for quarterback and know by the end of this thing after five weeks uh, who the quarterback is going to be? Yeah,
3: yeah. Well, with Arroyo, I think that's highly doubtful, right? Like, based on, you know, last season and how far he was willing to stretch that quarterback competition in particular, I I would – I would hope or I would think that he would use as, as much time as he could before the season to really evaluate that position. Who knows, though? It's possible. Um, but I think the spring this year for the Rebels in, in particular is going to be really the first spring he's had to do a full install. And you know, for the way college football works, uh, the competition, like I said, the physicality, the, the game readiness really picks up in the fall because you've had you know the summer to weight lift and bulk up and things like that. And then it's all about competing on the field letting it fly, and, and getting as similar to game reps as you can during the fall. The spring is really about installation, which is learning the playbook, um, getting as many packages as you can um, at, a, at a solid pace, at a steady pace, to to your players so that they can gather the information, grasp it, learn it, so that when fall comes they're not thinking about it. So I think it's it's really going to be important to, to evaluate how quickly or how adequately players pick up the plays or pick up the installation because we don't know how much of the playbook, was kind of left on the cutting room floor, so to speak, from the fall last year. There could be a, a, a boatload of information that is going to be thrown at these players during the spring, and that's usually what spring ball is for. I, I couldn't, especially when you're switching systems or trying to learn a new system. So I wouldn't say that the quarterback decision would be decided there, but I think um, based on the end of spring ball, whoever grasped the playbook or grasped the concepts, uh, the best would definitely have a leg up going into the fall competition. Um, but uh, with that quarterback spot, I, I know, I'm just, just talking to Arroyo all last season, he's going to do everything he can to evaluate that position the most he can and maximize the time he has. So I, I, it's unlikely that you see a starter coming out of the spring at that position.
1: The position battles are going to be massive. Uh, I am really fascinated to see with all the new bodies, whether it's transfers, whether it's true freshmen, freshmen who were in last year, how the front seven is going to shake out. I, I think the battles there are going to be great.
3: Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think you know the, the additions, especially on the transfer portal and and grad transfers and things like that, and even just JUCO recruits that came in to help beef up that front seven, which you know took some hits on the offensive side as well, as far as the offensive line. But the front seven that was uh, really kind of an issue that I, I wouldn't say it wasn't expected, but an issue that carried on throughout the season, as far as being able to stop the run um, for the defense. So I think that became a priority in recruiting. I mean, you see that with kind of some of the additions up front in that front seven with the, the heavy emphasis on outside linebacker. I mean, it for us, you know, coming from a 4-3 system or to me in general, coming from a 4-3 system, you're not used to seeing that much emphasis in recruiting on the outside linebacker position. So there's that kind of toss up of are they going to be moving at the inside linebacker or are some of these guys going to be moving at the end? Or what how's that going to shake up? So. Um, interesting battles are going to shake out, and more importantly, I think is the chemistry aspect of these things. These are guys that are expected to come in and play and contribute right away. Talking about the the transfers, um, some big names, you know, the Connor Murphy's that are expected to come in, trapping Tyler Wilborn, these Pac-12 names that are coming in and expected to contribute. Right. Um, so the the chemistry aspect of this will they gel, fit in with the system? How quickly does that happen? Spring ball is going to play a big part in that, and then also for us as media and fans getting a chance to see what they look like, you know, up close and personal or however close we're allowed to get during spring practice, obviously that's going to be shaken out here soon. But um, to be able to see it and see the finished product and for the coaches to be able to see it on the field and how they click and gel in the system, um, there's nothing like getting to see it firsthand. So I think spring is is going to be for the Rebels a a monumental step in the right direction, hopefully in the right direction, as far as knowing what we're going to have on the field and, and being able to properly Um, diagnose what needs to happen with this system and who needs to play where. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see. And I'm, I'm excited for that process of the evaluation to shake out and to hear what Roy has to say as this thing gets rolling.
1: Let's talk Raiders off season. And I want to get your thoughts on the, uh, the additions and the, you know, the rebuild One the offensive line. uh, They broke it up and now they're trying to rebuild it. And today official uh, officially uh, incognito and Denzel good are back. Uh, The defensive line added a bunch of names uh, including Solomon Thomas. There's an extra offensive weapon or two and John Brown and, and Kenyon and Drake. But a lot of people outside of Vegas are like, what the hell are the Raiders doing? Are you in that camp? Or do you think the Raiders have been pretty solid here and you know, you're willing to give them like a B or B-plus for the offseason moves in-house and uh, from outside the organization?
3: I, I am currently firmly planted in the what-the-hell category right now. I mean, it, it, it's, I think the Raiders were in a spot going into the offseason. This is kind of how I grade free agency or just the offseason in, in, in general. Um, you know what you have going into the offseason. I think the Raiders could have reasonably said, while they were overpaying in some estimates with the Trent Brown contract up front and, and things like that, they were maybe overpaying for the offensive line that they had. But the rest of that offense, you could have probably been reasonably reasonable to say that that was a playoff-ready offense. They could have made the playoffs had it just been on the strength of their offense alone. So the priority then for the offseason was defense. And I think everyone... Agreed to that right after the season ended, and and the, watching the Super Bowl run, um, you agreed that the defense was priority for the Raiders. So when I grade the off season, I go based on how much they addressed the needs that they knew they had. Now some of the moves that they made in a bubble sound like good moves. The Kenyon Drake signing, I I like Kenyan Drake. I like him as a running back. Um, you know, bringing Incognito back, those kind of things. You know, they 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 aren't that bad. Um, but I think you've created an issue that you now have to fix by decimating your offensive line. And while they're trying to restructure that, they haven't made the strides that you would have liked to see on the defensive side of the ball, namely in the secondary. And that's one of the issues in this now-evolved league, especially when you're playing in a division with you know, the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. The pass defense is a is a priority. And I don't think they addressed that issue uh, really whatsoever on the back end on the defense. Now you could say they've they've bulked up on the defensive line, at least added depth, but I don't think they've added a premier pass rusher that has established that they are a, a dominant pass rusher alone. Like they're them by themselves are a dominant pass rusher. And I, you know, they've got some guys that maybe are complimentary pass rushers, but I don't think anybody, um, any of the signings on defense so far has been, wow, that's a game changer. They're going to make an impact and a big splash to the tune of, you know, making their defense competitive in these situations. So uh, right now, I don't. I just don't see the, the plan. And I, I think it may be a little bit of stubbornness on the part of the front office to say, you know, we're going to ride it out with Jonathan Abrams in the secondary or Damon Arnett. We're confident that these guys are going to grow into what we want them to be and, you know, maybe kind of reluctant to pull off on that, which could be the right move. It could be true that they just need to develop a little bit more. But uh, for, for my liking right now, with the kind of window that you had, at least on the offensive side, with the structure of your key players' contracts with, with Waller um, and Carr and and, uh, and you talk about Renfro and the weapons and Jacobs, the weapons that you have at your disposal in the office, I think you may be wasting a window right now by not giving those guys an adequate defense to, to really complement the offense. So we'll see. We'll see what continues to happen the draft. There's still that. There's still hope there. But uh, right now I'm still in the what-the-hell category.
2: I'm right there with you, Caleb. And when we look at what they've done this offseason – I agree with you. Ngakwe has not proven that he can be the guy. Uh, He, on that Jacksonville defense, was one of a number of guys when he had his best years with Gus Bradley. But I think the thing for me is, kind of going along with what you said, what position other than defensive end do you look at right now and say the Raiders are clearly better at that position than they were at the end of last year? Again, if you consider Kenyon Drake an upgrade over Devontae Booker, great at the cost that they paid he'd better be I just don't see any spot other than defensive end where they are clearly better than they were at the end of the year
3: yeah and I'd agree with that I, I there's nothing that I would say that and that's kind of my point I did there's nothing that puts them head over hills in a better spot defensively and that's the main thing that they, they needed. and I, I guess you could say Nicholas Morrow at linebacker would improve the linebacking core but not to the point where you're saying that core is now solid. They're good. They don't need anything else. They don't need any help because depth now becomes an issue, right? So, I mean, there's there's so much left to be desired by the free agency to this point, and, and by the offseason moves to this point, where you got to just start to wonder: Is it, uh, like I said, a stubbornness on the part of management to say we, we got a formula, we know what we're doing, we're on this track, um, or is it just you know? And I hate to say this because I don't, I, I'm not in the room. I I just can't see the plan right now. But it is a matter of incompetence, where they're you know kind of saying we don't need this, we don't need to do this. We got what we want, we got a plan, we're going to go forward with this, and and that's going to be the end of it. That's what it would feel like. But I, I just know that there's some more to this plan. Whether it's freeing up cap space to be ready to make that monumental move when it comes, um, like you see, yeah, like you saw the Buccaneers enjoyed last time. Um, maybe it's not a, a this year focus. Maybe they don't feel like the team as a as a as a whole was ready to be what they wanted to be, so kind of biding their time for that next transformational player. But I just, for for the immediate future, when you thought coming into this, when the Raiders made their way to Las Vegas, you thought maybe playoff or bust. I mean, that was kind of the buzz around town and and the feel about, you know, Derek Carr and that offense and the weapons that they had at their disposal. Um, You felt like it was a playoff team. Uh, Things didn't go that way, so I I thought the urgency would be there to kind of pick it up, but I, I just don't see it right now as far as um, these signings, these complimentary signings that are maybe going to add to it an overall feel of a team but you don't have anything yet that that really wows me and says yeah they fixed the problem
2: all right so given that now we start looking toward the draft and we say all right now they have they've created this problem on the offensive line they haven't necessarily solved anything other than adding a pass rusher so now does this change at all with what you've seen thus far in the offseason how they approach the draft?
3: I think it does. I think um, offensive line becomes more of a priority. Obviously, you want to get quality offensive line to restructure things. And, and I know signing incognito and good is, is, is great. That's all good. But there's still some key pieces, namely your center, that's, that's not there anymore. That The protection, you know, Trent Brown's not there, even though he wasn't really there much of last season either. But having that offensive line um, to protect your quarterback is, is very important. And any team, every team understands that. You know, when you got a quarterback, you want to protect and keep them upright. And you just look at what the Chiefs did in the Super Bowl, and not being able to protect their quarterback kind of ruined the whole thing, right? The whole the whole pie falls apart if you don't have those pieces in there. So um, the offensive line jumps up in the priority, and I honestly don't know where you go from there, how you build through the draft, because I think, like I said, the the thing that the Raiders may be up against is the window of opportunity to actually be a competitive team and a, a Super Bowl contender is closing as, you know, these guys start to aid. Hey, as Jacobs' contract expires, as Waller starts to get, you know, it's, he stays at the top of the crop as far as tight ends in the NFL, he's going to need a pay out, right? So these contractually and the finances of the things won't work anymore if you continue to drag the process out of building. So I don't know if you can instantly fix anything through the draft. And I don't know if the management has shown that they're capable of drafting the right guys. And Jonathan Abrams is the one that pops into my mind as not the right guy. Um, for uh, for the free safety spot. So I don't know if, if the draft is even the right way to go. And that's part of why I put so much emphasis on free agency. I, I thought the Raiders would fix a lot of these issues in free agency, and it just hasn't been the case. But I definitely think the draft scheme has to change, given that the offensive line was decimated, and I think that hurts what you're able to do in the draft um, with your defense.
1: Caleb, let's uh, go back to where we started, a little bit of UNLV talk here. Uh, one, your reaction to Altsilberger's Leaving, and I know we talked about this a little bit last week, but uh, UNLV stays in house to go with the UNLV guy in Kevin Kruger.
3: Yeah, you know, first, Othberger, you know, that guy, unbelievable, what a jerk, you know, like just leaving like that, high like no, that, I'm kidding, but he's I, <laughs> I, I knew you wanted him to go there, no, I just I. I think, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. God for I,
1: I, I think uh, Caleb, I haven't called him a jerk. I just I'm surprised that there are so many people who are like, well, you know, it's a dream job. What can you do? I don't know. Stay around, like, or you know, yeah, indicate I mean, you're going to leave whenever the freaking job opens. I just I, if I if I'm part of the UNLV uh, family, you know, if I'm uh, at the school, if I'm one of the players, I feel a bit jilted. I don't I don't think you're a bad person if you're you know if you're not like, well, good for him.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. Like you, you I you understand, I that should be the second, as a UNLV fan and supporter, that part is the secondary thing. Like, good for him, he's moved on to a, a great job, getting, getting good pay. But the first reaction of, of any fan, I think, would be, wow, we didn't see this coming. Where were the indicators? We thought you were building something here. That's what we were being told. Like, we're, you know, you're building a culture, you're building... That's what we were led to believe And You know, if you're a parent of one of the recruits that signed up, that's what you thought you were signing up for. You know, so there's got to be that feeling first as a supporter of the Rebel program. You know, and... TJ Altenberg was new to the Rebel program and the Rebel family, and we kind of bought in for this brief two years. It seems like a really brief two years, can with you know, considering the the pandemic and how last year was cut short. But it in this brief two years, we were you know kind of led to believe that he was two feet in on the program, so to speak, and and he was really going to be a a contributing member of the foundations of the new look UNLV basketball and the new new look Rebel athletics in in, in general. So. Um, for him to leave like that and that quickly, that suddenly, yeah, it hurts a little bit. Um, but then, you know, moving on to, to Kruger and that hiring, I think at least, you know, the optics of it, it feels right for UNLV as a homer. You know, it feels like a, a good move as far as a guy that wants to, and is saying all the right things in the media. Like Las Vegas is home. This isn't a stepping stone, you know, job. This is somewhere that I want to be. And, you know, you can see yourself coaching here for 10 years now. Granted, we would hope that that 10 years that you see is full of prosperity and tournament trips and things like that, but it feels good to have stability. And I think for the last three coaching, or two, I guess, with you going back to Men's Inn and without the work, it's been a really unstable uh, platform for UNLV basketball. The, the, the direction, where we're going with people transferring, leaving just so much inconsistency, it feels good to get a hire that maybe feels like the safe bet as far as providing a stable platform. Um, that feels like a homer, that feels like somebody that has a a stake vested in UNLV basketball, a a real personal stake that can't necessarily be bought anywhere else. It's something that he really desires to do. So that does feel good. Now, as far as is he going to produce wins, that's yet to be seen. And I'm not going to judge the hire based on that because that's just projecting. Um, But I I do think it feels good to, to see some stability in UNLV basketball again. And then also the name recognition instantly. Um, you know, Lon Kruger is one of the, the the you know the better loved, the more beloved coaches in UNOV history, and what he did in his stint here um, was much appreciated. And that's why he got the opportunity his now. But um, so that name recognition also helps as well. But I think the stability that that hire provides, at least the optics of it, um, is, is a big step in the right direction for the basketball program to kind of recover from the last four or five years of, of chaos around UNOV basketball.
1: Caleb, awesome spot, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, guys.
3: Enjoy the rest of your day.
1: There he is, Caleb Herring, the former quarterback for the Rebels. He's on the football broadcast now, and yeah, Rebel practice on the football side starts up in just six days, and March 30th, and goes all the way through to the beginning of May.
0: Visit Cofield's Corner on LVSportsNetwork.com for access to the latest podcasts and best interviews. Time now for Dustin DeHart's Club 99. Back to Steve Cofield.
1: All right, let's get you some updates on what's going on uh, throughout the afternoon. Adam Candy's here. It's Cofield, Battleborn Broadcast Center. Uh, I didn't want to react to uh, what we heard earlier, and that was that uh, one of the running Rebel players, Donovan Yap, freshman who barely played, uh, still has four years of eligibility because the uh, this year didn't count against anyone's eligibility. Well, he's in the transfer portal. Candy, first of all, you surprised And are you disappointed that he really never got a shot to uh, show what he could do?
2: I'm not surprised at all. I mean, it's a kid who I remember seeing in his high school days back at Arborview and thinking there's clearly some talent there. The body is not ready for Division One college basketball. And I think that's the biggest thing you probably looked at this year with Donovan Yap in the run that he did get he did not look physically like he belonged out there with the the rest of the runner rebels and the rest of the competition so he's got four years he's got plenty of time to put on some more weight and to be able to compete and maybe he's a kid who you know who ends up like trey woodbury going maybe half a level down going into the whack and becoming a big star would that be disappointing for rebel fans (laughs) i think you answered your own question sir because we've had plenty of discussion this year about former (laughs) rebels who've gone elsewhere and are doing pretty well
1: I don't know. Do people just kind of blow off the fact that Trey Woodbury, a hometown guy, you know, went to Utah Valley? Yes, it's a step lower, but averaged 15 points a game. And I still think he could have contributed to this program. Same thing with Ben Coupette. Most people didn't think he could play. He went to Little Rock, you know, decent conference, averaged like 13 points a game the last two years. So I just, you know, in Yap's case, uh, if it was a gentle nudge, uh, you know, if he's being shown the door and that's kind of the personnel judgment on this, I. You know, I hope UNLV doesn't look back on it, and I want Yap to do well, so I'm not rooting against him, but you know, if he all of a sudden pops up somewhere else in the West in a lower conference, you know, he goes up to Southern Utah, and then by his senior year, he's uh, 18 points a game, and he's scored 1,000 points.
2: Interesting school you pick out there uh, with a coach who used to be on the UNLV bench, but yeah, it, of course that would be disappointing. I think the other thing we have to keep in mind is around the middle of this year, we read stories coming out of UNLV of some of the veterans kind of having to show the way to the younger kids. And so maybe, maybe it was a tough year for some of the younger guys in the program. We don't know entirely what was going on around there. And for Donovan Yap or Trey Woodbury or anybody else, you want to feel like UNLV is the place that you can end up and you can be that hometown star and maybe keeping the continuity of the staff with Kevin Kruger and uh, and you know having uh, Slocum on the staff. like Those are the things that help you keep guys around.
1: I wonder if this is also a signal that the mindset is uh, getting a bit of a reset when it comes to building the roster at UNLV. I'm not saying Altsaburger underestimated the Mountain West Conference, but it is hard in the Mountain West Conference with all these teams, with veteran players. And by the way, the league is only going to get more and more veteran-laden with transfers and then all the holdovers. But I wonder if the mindset is changing with Kevin Kruger where it's like, you know, we simply can't have three guys on the roster or four that are developmental like we need players now who can play now
2: you talked about it yesterday and I thought you made a great great point at the top of the show to say don't talk to me about rebuilding like tell me that we are going to win here and if that's the idea I endorse it 100% because Cofield we can work it back the other direction if TJ Otzelberger really did underestimate the Mountain West then David Jenkins is example one as to how he did underestimate the Mountain West, because David Jenkins came in this year and was a useful player, but was nowhere near the player he had been in terms of output at South Dakota State. Yeah, a lot of the rate stats stayed the same, but the competition level that he was going against went up, and it looked like it took him a while to adjust to that, and you found out that his role as more of a catch-and-shoot guy I don't think is the full breadth of what T.J. Otzemberger would have hoped for him coming in.
1: And I think you agree with this one that uh, Jenkins and the you know estimation that he was going to be you know 15 points per game could probably play a little bit of point in the Mountain West Conference was part of the reason they were like, thanks Amari, we're good. Yeah, go ahead to the Pac-12, go up a level, uh, and that that was a miscalculation. Now again, I think you know the Hardy side of it too. You know they had a, certainly a say, and you know we're out of here. But uh, it's all part of building a roster, and I, I just I look at this conference and man, you know I hear all the stuff about growing old and you know you got to build a base and there's all this lamenting about the fact that there aren't guys who stay here 5 years i don't think you have time to do that in the mountain west conference uh, you know before Berger left i was looking at the rosters uh, and what they're probably going to have back and what they were getting in terms of transfers and believe me there's going to be transfers coming in and i had i had UNLV with everyone back you know uh, bryce hamilton jenkins back i had him as the eighth best roster
2: yeah Look around the conference. The fact that there is an extra year of eligibility for everybody, that guys have the choice to come back and get really, really old in the Mountain West if they want to, is something that is going to make it much, much more difficult for this program to compete because we saw this year that if you were to say, give me back everybody, everybody, that four to five players on that roster are really ready to compete for minutes night in and night out. Club 99 is presented by Dustin
0: DeHart at Nova Home Loans. Want to talk interest rates and ask about getting your mortgage tuned up? Dustin is Cofield's real estate guy. He needs to be yours, too. Call Dustin DeHart at 577-2600. It's Cofield and Company's Eye on Sports Betting with John Murray. Let's get out to the Westgate on a Wednesday to Superbook Sports.
1: John Murray is with us. How are you doing, John?
4: Good, good. Big weekend. Another big weekend coming up uh, this weekend. How you guys doing?
1: We're good, man. We're good. Uh, you mean it was a big weekend last weekend for you behind mm. the counter? We didn't do that well betting the games, did we?
4: You didn't. You didn't do well, or you and Adam, or are you referring to the general individual out there?
1: I'm I'm the uh, I'm a guy's guy. I'm a regular right. guy. I'm yeah. a man of the people. So I, I rep the entire betting community that we we kind of suffer.
4: Joe 12-pack over there. Yeah, it was was a tough run, although Monday the public did very well. They lost on the first game. I believe that was Oregon over Iowa. But they really beat us on every game the rest of the day Monday. So the the public did pull back uh, some of their losses on Monday. But Friday, Saturday, and especially Sunday was really, really good for the house at the Westgate.
1: So, can we go back in the tournament and talk about a prime example of from betting house to betting house? You need to read the rules. Uh, what mm-hmm. was the reaction? What was the deal on poor VCU in yeah. that Oregon game with the COVID issue?
4: Yeah, you know, we had our, our rules were pretty clear. Uh, you know, it was all over our sheet that uh, advancement uh, due to forfeiture of any kind counted as a win. When you're talking about prop bets on Oregon and all the game bets were refunded. Uh, I, I don't recall getting one complaint about it to be honest with you. We were, we we're pretty clear with our rules on that one.
1: Okay, good deal. Good deal. Uh, feel bad for VCU. It stunk. I feel bad yeah. for the Big Ten. You know, the Big Ten just uh, doesn't get enough credit. Well, the Big Ten gets a lot of credit. Um, how do you look at how the Big 12 and the Big Ten did in this one? Do we just go with the blanket, they sucked and they're overrated, or uh, mm-hmm. our take for the most part has been, listen, uh, these are one-off spots, two, two games. It doesn't mean that a conference stunk or was overrated. Where do you fall on this one?
4: Well, I don't think you want to overreact too much to just that one weekend. But, I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, I was absolutely shocked by what the Pac-12 did. I I was absolutely in that camp that thought the Pac-12 was sort of an afterthought this whole season. They went out and made a lot of people, including myself, look foolish. I thought the Big Ten was a little overrated all year, but I thought the Big 12 was the best conference in America all year, and they only got one team to the Sweet 16, too. So very, very surprising results. Uh, it's kind of what makes March Madness so much fun, I guess, that you see all these yep. these crazy upsets. I, I'm amazed Illinois went out the way they did. I just kept waiting for them to make a run, waiting for them to, to come back to and beat Loyola Chicago, and it just never came.
1: It's so crazy, right? You can play so well at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Or vice versa. You can go limping into the tournament and then turn it around in just a couple of games. Uh, I'm not going to say that I knew the Pac-12 was going to do this, but I, I do think the Pac-12 suffered from the fact. Uh, and, and just like the benefit on the other side, with no non-conference play or very little non-conference play, like we don't find out what teams are outside of their conference where they're yep. simply cannibalizing each other.
4: It sounds like it looks like that's what happened with the Big Ten. You know, we were all convinced the Big Ten was so good because they had all these high-profile games, but really they were just high-profile games against other Big Ten schools. It's not their fault. That's what it, that's just how this COVID season went. But uh, obviously, it looks like the Big Ten was very very overrated. And even Michigan, they could have lost that game to LSU. I think that was on Monday. I thought they got a few whistles there down the stretch in the second half just to get them into the Sweet 16. And they're going to have their hands full this weekend with Florida State.
2: John, we'll switch gears for a second and ask about your reaction uh, about the NHL situation with the ref getting caught on the hot yeah. mic talking about calling, uh, calling a penalty against Nashville last night. Uh, is that the sort of thing that, that you guys are, are tuned into on your side of the counter? Because obviously it brings up integrity questions for the NHL
4: now you're gonna get me in trouble Adam you, you you're leading me right into a, a wisecrack about integrity fees and I'm gonna sidestep that uh, but we did uh, we did talk about it we were definitely texting about it yeah we're all we're all well aware of that situation
2: good enough we'll leave it that's there. all
4: I can that's all I can give you there. you know no, the, I, I, the integrity yes. fees are a, a bit of a sore spot I think you know that
1: a, a thorny issue as we are <laughs> <Yeah>, well aware <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I'm going well go aware back. I'm going to go back to college basketball for a second. One last point on how we see these teams, how we rate these teams, and especially with the Big Ten. It's funny, when you look at Ken Palm, especially around the Big Ten, and you see so many teams in that conference are really good on the defensive metrics. But then when you start to think about it, if they all play each other and all of them really aren't proficient at scoring, then, of course, their defensive numbers are going to be good. So I, I know it's kind of repeating what we said already about uh, I really want to get back to what we have in normal years, where everyone's playing those non-con games. Hopefully yeah. they play good ones and we get a better read and we can have a, a more accurately seated NCAA tournament. I will tell you this, though. On the Pac-12 thing, what I am surprised by, uh, I've actually heard some national people say, you know what, I didn't watch enough Pac-12 basketball. I missed on this. But then I just saw an ESPN.com reseeding of the tournament, and the Pac-12 teams are reseated at 12, 13, 14, and 15. Like, wait, what's really? – Nothing. Well, yes. Who
4: didn't Who didn't watch Pac-12 basketball this year? I, I can't use that excuse. I live on the West Coast. I love Bill Walton. I, I I considered a lot of the Pac-12 games to be appointment viewing. So if they if you weren't watching Pac-12 basketball all season, that's your loss. But I did watch it, and I definitely didn't think that they were going to do anything close to what they just did uh, the yeah. first weekend.
1: All right. Let's talk a little NBA. Uh, what happens here when the Lakers? They lost three in a row. Uh, they're in some trouble here. Uh, You know, they got to make sure they're in the playoffs. You've got a 10-team field because of the play-in spots. What the hell is going to happen with your title odds if the Lakers finish the season like 38-34 and and they're in the 8-hole?
4: Yeah, we bump the Lakers up a little bit. I mean, I think you have to. Uh, We don't want to go too crazy with it when, uh, you know, we've got a big liability on L.A. and we know people are going to be looking to bet on L.A., and obviously, if the Lakers do get LeBron James and Anthony Davis back in time for the postseason, it really doesn't matter what seed they are. I don't think it really makes any difference what, what seed number is next to their team name. But the question really is going to be, are they going to make the playoffs? I mean, I don't know how long LeBron and Davis are going to be out for. It sounds like a while. And without those two guys, they could be in for a long losing stretch here. Uh, I think that would be my main concern, as uh, if I was a Lakers fan, is them falling all the way out of that, uh, that top six.
1: John, they're six games out of the 10 spot. I mean, it's yeah. not It's not. – they've got some it's massive – It's not
4: impossible. Bat. We've talked about it. We, we've talked about they could actually miss the playoffs entirely, even counting those two play play-in situations. It's not an impossibility because without LeBron James and obviously without Anthony Davis, that's not a good basketball team.
1: Uh, your numbers are up for the Sweet 16. Have you been hit on a game or two? Do you have any uh, strong sides here from the really smart guys out there? Not me, the Sharps.
4: Well, you know, we're, we're, getting, just, we're getting nailed on, uh, on Alabama. It looks like the biggest, uh, the biggest need of the week is going to be UCLA. We did see a guy we respect took UCLA actually at the Superbook in Colorado, but that surprised me because I know that all the public bettors are going to be on Alabama. I could see that number going up against that individual. And we saw Sharp guys taking USC. They took USC plus one. They took USC minus one. Now USC is minus two and a half. So keep an eye on that game. I mean, we we made Oregon a small favorite in that game. So if that number keeps going higher, we would argue there could be some value on Dana Altman and the Ducks in that game. The games on uh, the game Saturday should be fun. The public's going to be all over Baylor against Villanova, and we're seeing a lot of people taking Syracuse. I think that's the late game on Saturday. They're taking the Orange and the points. Houston barely survived Rutgers over the weekend, and now they're facing a regional of Oregon State, Loyola, Chicago, and Syracuse. So, big opportunity for, for Kelvin Sampson in Houston.
1: That's kind of crazy. I was looking at your uh, odds to win the Midwest Regional, a two-seed against all double-digit seeds, and they're still only plus with 115. Now, Gonzaga was dominant all year, uh, so it's not a shocker. They're a heavy favorite, but minus 375
4: to win the West. Well, Gonzaga just seems to cruise through everything. And I'll tell you this, too. No matter what number we seem to attach next to Gonzaga, people are betting us. Whether we're talking about them betting Gonzaga to win the West Regional, which we took a lot of money on before the tournament started. They keep betting Gonzaga to win the tournament. Uh, One guy I do respect that came in today, he came in and bet Baylor to win the South Regional minus a quarter. And we moved that up to minus 140. I found that bet interesting because they they have a, a relatively tough pass going through Villanova and presumably they would play Arkansas on Monday in the regional finals not an easy road for for Baylor really Gonzaga should they Gonzaga should get to the final four pretty comfortably
1: does that respect that you have for certain players come with the size of their bet they win no no it,
4: it just comes with a, that, knowing yep. the history of the player and, and knowing uh, their track record it's not about the dollar amount uh, it's just this is a guy that's been betting with us for a long time. Okay. And he's right more than he's wrong, but that doesn't mean he's going to be right about this.
1: John Murray's with us at the Westgate. What do you got set up this weekend? Do we go back to normal uh, property setup, or we got some of the rooms open for the Sweet Sixteen?
4: Just the VIP boots and the pods, like we always have, and then the normal seating in the book. Uh, we have the uh, we have a Miss America pageant in the International Theater this week, Steve. Wow!
1: Okay, so look this. the, at the... the, the,
4: the college little... basketball will be contained within the Superbook at the Westgate. But it should be a fun weekend. I'm excited. I like the. I really like the the Sweet Sixteen format where the four games are staggered on Saturday and Sunday. To get to the second weekend, and there's going to never be another time where two games are going at once, is good for business. Should yes. be good for handle, I think.
1: Uh, did you guys feel good about the last weekend in terms of the size of the crowd? I saw an email, I think it was from mm-hmm. someone at the Westgate, saying, uh, great job, we were back to normal. You know, felt like uh, just short of a Super Bowl weekend. Thanks to Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff.
4: Well, I can't disagree with that. Um, yeah, I don't know that it was quite back to normal. I mean, I remember the normal March Madness crowd was like standing room only all the way in the back of the room, right. which with the occupancy restrictions, we, we cannot do that right now. So I wouldn't go all the way back and say it's normal, but it did feel like semi-normal, seeing a good, safe crowd in the book like we had, especially on Friday and Saturday. We had, a, we had a very good crowd in there. It seemed like everybody was having a good time. They didn't have as much fun on Sunday, though. We were the ones having all the fun on Sunday.
1: Certainly we're not going to say anything was jam-packed.
4: No, absolutely not. I would never use that word or that term. All right, John. We'll see you this weekend. Thank you. All right, Steve. Thanks, guys.
1: There he is, John Murray, Superbook Sports. And, uh, yeah, ESPN Las Vegas was out there all last week, and uh, we saw a lot of you listeners, so that was cool, as we feel like you know, we're starting to open things back up. Five o'clock hours on the way. We're going to get to uh, the latest Raiders news is, uh, yeah, we get more information, according to uh, Greg Bedard, who was out here at the RJ at one point, is a really good NFL source. Got some interesting details in that Marcus Mariota restructuring.
0: Cofield and company will be back in minutes right here on ESPN Las Vegas.